The media are happy to throw glitter for trans kids living their best lives. But it's not all rainbows for one boy and his father. The boy's deranged mother and a captured divorce court have ordered that boy's castration and permanent sterilization. Yes, this is America, 2023. Vermont leads the way into this brave and stunning new world. House Bill 89 legalizes parental abduction and medical mutilation of children. Stranger still, most Republicans voted for it. We're going to ask why. All of this starts in your elementary schools. We're going to take you inside a primary school where they prep the kids for the sausage grinder. Have you ever heard of public school teachers quizzing children about their sexual desires? You will tonight on Disaffected. Welcome to Disaffected. I'm Joshua Slocum, and this is the show where we talk about politics, culture, and relationships through a psychological lens. And this week, we're going to take a deeper look at House Bill 89 in Vermont. Now, we told you about House Bill 89 this past Tuesday in a special that we aired. If you have not seen it, I would ask you to go back and look at it. It aired Tuesday night. It's called Do Vermont Republicans Know What They Were Voting For? This bill makes Vermont a sanctuary state for parents who want to abduct their own children and bring them into the state to trans them. And this is medical abuse that Vermont calls gender-affirming care. It's what we used to call sex changes. And now they're for children. And we're gonna illustrate this with a real life story. This is happening right now. These are real people I'm about to tell you about. And this comes via Abigail Schreier, from a long, very good article in City Journal. I urge you to read this. I can only give you a sample. This is necessary reading if you want to understand what's going on in family courts. And let me emphasize this, not just California family courts, not just in liberal states. This is going on everywhere. From Abigail's article, <clears throat> before she decided to strip him of all custody over his son, Drew, not his real name, before determining that he would have no say as a father in whether Drew began medical gender transition, California Superior Court Judge Joni Hiramoto asked Ted Hudako this. If your son Drew were medically psychotic and believed himself to be the Queen of England, would you love him? Ted replied, of course I would. I'd also try to get him help. Well, I understand that qualifier, Judge Hiramoto replied. But if it were, if you were told by Drew's psychiatrist, his psychologist, that Drew was very fragile and that confronting him, or I'm sorry, confronting them with the idea that they are not the Queen of England is very harmful to their mental health, could you go along and say, okay, Drew, you are the Queen of England and I love you. You are my child and I want you to do great and please continue to see your psychologist. Could you do that? Yes, Hudako replied. That sounds like part of a process that might take some time. Sure. What process? Judge Hiramoto asked. What is the thing that might take some time? Accepting the idea that Drew occupies an identity that you do not believe is true? Ted replies. The identity you just mentioned to me was Queen of England. 
I can tell him and I can affirm that to him to reassure him situationally, but objectively, he is not the Queen of England and that won't change. And even the therapist in that case would know that. Listeners, welcome to Kafka's The Trial, except this is the real world. This is a real family court in California, and these are real people that we're talking about. Joni Hiramoto is a real judge in family court. Here she is. Look at your screen. Yep. Although you can't see it in this picture, um, she's got purple hair, actually. And she herself, this is from her Facebook page, she chose to put this pride flag filter over her image. Now, let's take a look at the father in this case, Ted Hudako, holding a picture of his son. That little boy with the rocket. His son now is 16 years old. Back to Abigail's article. In the three years I've spent writing about families with transgender identifying minors, the story of Ted Hudako stood out as a case study of how gender ideology has infiltrated family law. It also frames the unintended consequences of medical professionals fudging science, rewriting medical definitions, and tolerating shoddy research to placate activists. <clears throat> Quote, at each stage, doctors may have thought, where was the harm? And so, as a consequence, judges now decide the fate of children and their families based on phony, medically unsubstantiated metaphysics, as if it were factual that all adolescents have an immutable, ineffable gender identity knowable only to the adolescents themselves. Now back to me. Here's how bad it got in court for Ted Hudako. A court-appointed minor's counsel, a lawyer for the boy, his name is Daniel Harkins, and he was handpicked by Judge Hiramoto to represent the interests of Drew, refused to read any articles that Hudako gave him that questioned the wisdom of transing children, simply refused. Harkins dismissed the world's leading researcher on gender dysphoria and children. His name is Ken Zucker. He dismissed him as a, quote, crank. Why? Because Zucker recommends watchful waiting, not affirmation in surgery. Daniel Harkins then accused Ted Hudako of not seeing his son as a, quote, independent person at 16 years old. Harkins also said that Hudako's skepticism about the transgender identity was unacceptable and made him an unfit parent. Any attempt to slow the transition down was described by this lawyer as abusive parenting. Quote, this is from Harkins's report to the court about the father. This is indicative of the father's view of Drew's gender identity. It also gives us an insight as to his view in general about transgender people. He simply does not see this as a viable alternative. He is very frustrated that he has not been able to express all of these ideas directly to Drew. Did you detect the glee there? That's glee. He's bragging. He's very frustrated that I won't let him tell his son these ideas. <laughs> Sick. <sighs> Daniel Harkins also accused Ted Hudako of not giving his son, quote, unconditional love, as compared to his psychotic mother, Christine, who has both had puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones implanted in her son's body. That's right. 
Time release. Right now, as you listen to me and watch me on this screen, right now, this very minute, Drew is being sterilized as those chemicals seep out into his bloodstream. Here's more from Miner's counsel, Daniel Harkins, standing up for this, oh, I'm sorry, not boy, this being. Quote, these parents have a choice. They can either continue to believe that they should be in total control of their child's life, or they can come to an understanding that those days are past, and they need to work with their children and give their children some independence in the ability to make some of their own decisions, end quote. We're talking about castration here, folks. We're not talking about a tattoo. We're not talking about going to a sleepover. We're talking about castration and permanent sterilization. Okay, what's happening to Drew right now? He's being permanently sterilized, right? Again, reminder, not temporary loss of fertility. Drew will never be able to have children. And what about Judge Hiramoto? Might she have any conflicts of interest that would lead an ethical judge to recuse herself? Does she have any skin in this particular game? From Abigail's article, on October 1st, 2019, on a post of her biologically mailed child dressed in earrings and makeup, Judge Hiramoto comments, proud to be your mom. In May 2020, one month before Ted and Christine Hudako first appeared in court, Judge Hiramoto's son celebrated on Instagram his one-year anniversary coming out as a transgender female. On July 3rd, 2020, after Judge Hiramoto had entered her first provisional order, granting Christine full custody. Her trans feminine son posted on Instagram, this is my first time wearing a bikini. Judge Hiramoto commented, beautiful. And guess what else happened? Judge Hiramoto terminated and dissolved Ted Hudako's parental rights permanently. He may not contact his son. He may not write to his son. He may have no contact with him whatsoever because of this bitch, this lunatic California court judge. Guess what else? Christine, the wife who's abusing the child, she lied. She claimed that Ted was threatening her with what she called domestic violence. They weren't even living in the same house. So do you know what happened? Agents showed up at Ted's house and demanded that he surrender all of his firearms under California law. So they've taken his guns, they've taken his son, and they've taken his ability to speak. These are the people who rule us. These are our rulers. This is family court in the U.S. This is child protective services. Don't ever, ever again ask, why aren't they calling CPS? Why do you think? This is CPS. You better pray to whatever God you believe in because we're in trouble. This is real, it's happening, and it's happening right now. Now we're gonna be joined by my friend Brandon Showalter, who's a journalist at the Christian Post, who has covered the topic of the transgendering of children and the way that family courts have been ruining families over this issue for years. Brandon, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Josh, good to be here. So we've told the audience about the horrific story of Ted Hudako and his ex-wife, Christine, and their son that we are calling Drew. Drew is not his name, but that is the name that we are using uh, from Abigail Schreier's article. You told me um, 
you told me that when I read this, that it was going to uh, be very distressing, and you were right. I had a hard time sleeping last night. Um, it's almost, it's almost unbelievable how bad this is. It is quite yeah. literally a Kafka nightmare, um, and in my view, it's a it's a cluster B nightmare. In my view, uh, all of mm -hmm. the primary people involved in this case are displaying absolutely toxic, malignant, narcissistic traits. Uh, and they are the ones who are in charge of, of, um, of this family, unfortunately. Have you, one thing that stuck out to me, have you noticed a lot of judges in these cases who are, like this judge did, confusing the issue of homosexuality with the issue of allegedly being trans and being in the wrong, born in the wrong body? It seems that the queer orthodoxy runs the day. I have seen some of this conflation of those things, but uh, what I have observed, having done, I haven't, you say, I have reported on the institutional capture of a lot of institutions, not so much the family courts, though I did some in the Jeff Younger case, which is another famous case. Uh, I have covered those issues some, but it is whatever the trans activists want. Uh, whatever, <laughs> they are completely captured by that lobby and what those ideologues, um, and among those is the conflation of same-sex attraction, homosexuality with this trans orthodoxy. There's no question about that. It is, I've heard it one person said, largely looked at uh, as gay plus, uh, even though, and in the course of my reporting, I've interviewed and talked to countless gays and lesbians who are adamantly opposed to this stuff as you are. Uh, and it is, it's just so, it's so disgraceful to see um, at the highest levels of our court system and indeed at the tops of almost all of our institutions, this rules the day. It's incredible to me how much capture there is. As I was reading Abigail's article, I, 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 well, I was talking out loud to myself. I was cussing and swearing and <laughs> slapping my forehead. I'm, you know, she had a section talking about all of the effort that these ideologues have put into giving in mm -hmm. services to family yeah. court judges, yes. social workers. And, and mm -hmm. but, but what frustrates me about this is, okay, I understand that. I see what they're doing, but I look at these legal professionals and I say, did you take your, do you have it? Did you take your brain out and place it on the nightstand and go to work today? Because I don't care how many in services I sit through I, as a thinking, rational human being, simply cannot accept any of the unbelievable nonsense that these people are, are telling, and yet they have accepted it. You saw, uh, you saw in, in Abigail's description of some of the court hearings, the judge is actually sitting there correcting Ted Hudako's use of pronouns for a yeah. child who mm -hmm. hasn't even been through the... <laughs> who will be, uh, it's, it's astonishing. Um, it, how do we uncapture them, <laughs> right? See, is the question, what, what kinds of things can, can we do to, to push this back in the other direction? That seems to be a million dollar question. And uh, frankly, I think it's probably gonna take an act of God at this point, because once this ideology grips the mind, it doesn't let go. Uh, I've never seen anything quite like it where people are rigidly committed to a uh, material falsehood, that of being born in the wrong body. Uh, this, this dogma is so authoritarian. It's so insane. 
this this notion that you can somehow be the opposite sex ontologically, <laughs> that it has to be enforced with authoritarian measures because nobody in their right mind would uh, would agree to it or, or go along with it. And so that's that's why you know it is commanding you to look at mm -hmm. a rock and say, look at the rock, not rock. Look at the rock, mm -hmm. not rock. Right. I, I, what do you do it's with the that? Epitome, it is the epitome. It is the epitome of gaslighting because it, you really go crazy when you're forced to deny what's right in front of your eyes. You asked what we can do to uncapture people. I have I have seen something that's very effective. I think 2022. Uh, I just as a journalist on the front lines of this issue, it was kind of a banner year for those who have been victims of this medical abuse to raise their voices. And as the harm becomes more visible, and it's a challenge because the trans activist movement is so exhibitionist and kind of gory where people are broadcasting their, their scars after they had their breasts cut off on, yes. on social media. And so the harm, even they have been indoctrinated to believe that the harm is actually not harm. But I think as more testimonies emerge where they're giving voice to just how harmful it actually was, that does help people you know, leave behind this commitment to the ideology, the medical scandal. I, I often say that transgenderism is many things, but one of the main things that it is, is the medical scandal. And I would just add that it's also a family fracturing scourge. Yes, it, it is. And um, I wonder, and I know that you, I know that there's no database that, that has captured this. And I know that you don't have a, a specific number you can give me. I'm, I'm asking to speak from your experience. I, you've told me that a, lo a lot of parents, mainly fathers, perhaps some others, but overwhelmingly fathers, have contacted you over the years, finding themselves in situations like what um, James Younger has been in, like what uh, Ted Hudako has been in. Do you have any sort of gut sense of how widespread this is? These, these, these families that are being legally fractured by um, mentally deranged courts what I can say is that it's so much more widespread than the average person knows. It is absolutely everywhere, even in very conservative, deep red states where you would think that the surrounding community is vehemently opposed to this kind of madness. It's there because of the institutional capture in hospitals and in family courts. Family law is an area that, of law that has fallen to the wolves, it seems. Um, I, I've often said that I think when this mass psychosis of gender ideology breaks off of our society, I'll be among the few that's not shocked by the scope of all the, not only the medical harm, but the family fracture and the damage. It's going to take years to unpack. Um, and yes, I do hear from, I, I've lost count how many parents I've heard from. And if it's of a very young child, nine times out of 10 or more, it's the fathers who are trying to oppose the transing of their child, um, sons and daughters alike, but oftentimes it's the moms who's you know, doing it to the boys. But every once in a while, I'll also get the reverse too, where it's a mother who is trying to protect the child from the father who's trying to transit. And my philosophy is I'll always side with the parent who's trying to prevent medical harm to the child. Absolutely. Uh, you and I agree on that. But I do want to underscore that point. Um, and, and I underscore it um, every time I talk about this, and I'm going to continue doing it. Um, this is overwhelmingly a mother's preferred form of abuse. Um, this mm -hmm. is a yeah. this is a wickedness that women overwhelmingly are doing, and I do also notice that the women who are doing this overwhelmingly prefer to castrate their sons. They overwhelmingly choose their sons to mutilate. Have you mm -hmm. noticed that? 
Well, it would be, I really have lost count. I was looking at an article not so long ago. It was a, in the Journal of Child Abuse and Neglect. Of This was a psychiatric review where the researchers, I think, surveyed over 750 or so cases of medical abuse of Munchausen's by proxy syndrome. And I think it was 90, right. And it was 95 to 97. I think it was 95% of the times it was a mother, 97%. 97.6%, I believe, was was women doing it. Um, clearly, there, there's something we really need to dig deep and figure out what's going on. Because, <laughs> I mean, if, the, if it were 70-30, it would be interesting. But the fact that it's 97 says, like, okay, there's something specific here that we've got to really dig deep and figure out what is going on here. I'm, I, I'm working on an article now about that very thing. And it's a very bizarre and complex subject. And harrowing, uh, very harrowing. Yes, <laughs> it is. I, I, I think actually, I think actually that we do know. Um, I think we know quite a bit. Um, I think that we're just simply not saying it. Um, this is how it looks to me. It does not surprise me at all that it's overwhelmingly women doing this. Why does it not surprise me? Because I know what this is, even if people won't say it. Um, this is Munchausen by proxy. Transing children, yeah. transing your child, there are some cases where it's not. There are some cases, but they are the minority, okay? <laughs> um, it is Munchausen's by proxy. That is overwhelmingly a, uh, a women's problem. And the root cause of this is cluster B personality structures, narcissism, borderline, histrionic, instability, and attention-seeking. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we're going to have to get honest about that. Um, we've talked on this show about... Um, House Bill 89 in Vermont, which, as a reminder to mm -hmm. everybody, has just passed our House. It is about to go to the Senate. We are trying to stop it. It goes further than California's law. It makes Vermont a sanctuary state for anyone who wants to abscond with a child and get gender-affirming care. Uh, it allows uh, abusive parents to sue the non-abusive parent for trying to stop the abuse. What do you think is going to happen? When you look out at a state like Vermont and you see a bill like this, how do you think this is going to affect this problem? What are the consequences of states doing what Vermont is doing? Well, the nightmare scenarios abound, Josh. I think, um, I, I know that you believe that Vermont's bill goes even farther than California's and I, with the vexatious or the abuse uh, allowing the parents to sue, that, that certainly sounds to me that I, I'm, I would I would concur with that that it does go farther. The California bill, for example, uh, they they amended the Uniform Child Custody Jurisdiction Enforcement Act, um, which then would allow the parent who lives in another state to go to California, and the California jurisdiction trumps where they normally live. And so the nightmare scenarios you you think I'm like, effectively, as I see it, and I'm no legal expert, this is just enabling another form of trafficking, essentially, where you can go. To a different state, and as other states now, mostly conservative. I mean, all conservative ones. I think Arizona is more of a purple state these days. But Arizona, Alabama, Arkansas, very recently Utah and South Dakota, uh, possibly soon uh, Nebraska and Oklahoma. They're passing laws to restrict, ban this medicalization for minors. But even that won't really protect you if a parent manages to go to California or to Vermont, it looks like if this law goes through, and the state entities, the family courts, will take the side of the parent 
in favor of this gender ideology if they are one such parent who's doing this and believes that their child needs this for some deranged reason. Uh, yeah, Munchausen actually, by proxy, I, I mean, it's... Yeah, actually, yeah. I'm sorry to cut you off, but I want to give you a chance to plug something because we're coming to a close. You've got a documentary that's very important that, that I want you to tell people about. Uh, so as we close up, please, please plug it. Well, uh, the documentary is called Dead Name. And as you explore these issues about legislation and legal stuff. Um, I think it's easy for the discussion about these issues, the transing of children to get sort of lost in the weeds. But if you want to acquaint yourself with what this family fracturing scourge, as I keep saying, actually is, go to deadnamedocumentary.com. It profiles three families that have been ripped apart by this. And this is even outside of the family court issues, though the family court issues um, do appear in one case. But it humanizes the issue from the parents' perspective. Parents who are trying to save their children from irreversible medical harm. The medicalization, I think, is the biggest concern of parents. I was honored to be a part of that documentary uh, by Broken Hearted Films as a, as a commentator alongside a psychiatrist who is sane, uh, Dr. Stephen Levine out of, out of Case Western University of Ohio. It's a small fee, but indie, indie documentary filmmakers are, are filling a very crucial truth-telling void by making films that humanize this issue and tell the truth as it really is. Deadnamedocumentary.com. 50 minutes, it's worth seeing. Brandon, thank you for joining us, and thank you very much for your work. You're one of the good ones. I appreciate it. Thank you, Josh. Looking for a non-woke place to put your money where your mouth is? Put it where my mouth is. Disaffected supporters get access to our private Discord chat server, backstage episode recording sessions, surprise guests, and more. And all it takes is $10 a month. You've got two options. Either Substack, visit us at disaffectedpod.substack.com or go over to subscribestar.com slash disaffected. Remember, choose the $10 level or higher for Discord access. school sends out a letter to all the parents announcing one of our students is now Rosa and we would love you all to come and celebrate and support her and he was four years old I didn't even know if he knew what a pronoun was I go to the daycare a week later uh, to, to drop him off and it's Rosa is written on the entrance sheet where I have to sign Rosa's on his cubby it, it's everywhere and they would just look at me and listen. They would say, Helen, you should really learn to accept this and celebrate it. And I'm like, celebrate what? Celebrate that my child's gonna be put on hormones and his penis will never grow and he'll never have a normal sex life and he'll be on drugs for the rest of his life. This was when she was like 15. Um, I remember being up in her room and she said, I'm trans and I need a new name. Somehow I got a text from CVS your, your prescription for TES is available. She's like, it's mine. You can't take it from me. You can get this by making a phone call and having a teleappointment. I mean, there was no psychological evaluation. There was nothing. Where does our species go 
if, if you can cut off your body parts like this. Sean had set up an appointment with an endocrinologist at the hospital to try to get hormones. I'm looking at it as, hey, this kid just needs to explain to him, hey, he's had a lot of traumatic events through his life, you know, losing his leg. We had an older son that died of a heroin overdose when he was eight years old. He went through the loss of his mom, being diagnosed with cancer again. I mean, we, I went through all, I said, all these things have to have a big effect on him. When I had the appointment with the psychiatrist, I was just blown away when she turned around and told me that he's definitely transgender um, and you are an unsupportive, abusive father. I'm trying to keep him alive. We're going to get into more detail about House Bill 89. As a reminder, we did a special 15-minute episode this past Tuesday called Do Vermont Republicans Know What They Voted For? Uh, it would be a really good idea for you to check that out, too, because we're going to talk about a few different things in this one. In this segment of the show, we're going to use an example scenario to help you understand what the very complicated language in this Vermont bill means in the real world with a real family. You know, Kevin spoke to a legislator about this recently who said that they, the Republicans, didn't even consider this scenario when they were voting on the bill. So here's the scenario. We're going to talk about Bob, Jane, and Billy. Bob and Jane are married. Billy is their 10-year-old son. Bob, Jane, and Billy live in the state of Utah. Utah bans child sex changes that Vermont calls gender-affirming care. Jane and Bob are getting divorced, and one of the major contentions is that Jane wants to trans 10-year-old Billy into a girl. Utah will not allow her to do this. It is now illegal as of January 29, 2023, to abuse children this way, as it should be in all states. So Jane decides to take Billy on a trip to Vermont, and she begins the transing process when she gets Billy here. If this bill, H-89, becomes law, Vermont will not only transition Billy against his father Bob's wishes, but Vermont will also ignore any legal orders from a family court in Utah that would prevent this. This is unconstitutional. Not a gray area, not an opinion. It is unconstitutional. Fact. And what part of the Constitution? Once again, Article 4, Section 1 the full faith and credit clause. Now, if Bob tries to stop Jane from transing Billy in Vermont by, uh, for example, by filing suit, civil suit against Jane using Utah law, if this bill in Vermont becomes law, Vermont will not only ignore the suit and refuse to cooperate with the civil court from another state, Vermont law also gives Jane a specific enumerated right to sue Bob back for interfering, and Vermont law calls what Bob is doing to save his child abusive litigation. That's right. Do you see the cluster B here? Do you see the narcissistic reversal? This is all cluster B, OK? 
Okay, that's what that has. To, that's what this has to do with the theme of this show. All of this is cluster B. It's narcissism. Some of it is direct psychopathy, and there's a lot of borderline and histrionic emotional instability going on here. This is abuse. All right, so let's look a little bit more deeply at House Bill 89. I'm going to pull some of the language, and I'm going to show it to you on your screen, and I'm going to read it slowly to you. Even though I read it slowly to you, it's not going to make it that much easier for you to understand. Why am I doing this? Because I want you to experience what it's like to try to parse this legislation, and I want you to understand, after you've watched this, how lawmakers get fooled and deceived by high legalese that citizen lawmakers, and in Vermont, we really do have citizen lawmakers. It's not just a cutesy name. These really are just people who live down the street from you. They're not legal experts any more than a plumber off the street is. Uh, they don't have the tools to parse this stuff. And the opposing side knows this. And I believe that they deliberately hired lawyers who wrote in the most abstruse and opaque language using multiple nested dependent clauses that make I had to, to prepare for this segment, I had to work on paper, and I had to make very careful notes after each line and write out plain English translation. And I had to go back and check myself because I got lost in the dependent clauses, okay? So I, I want you to experience this so you understand it. Then I'm going to give you a plain English translation. First quote from the law. The definition of gender-affirming health care services means all supplies, care, and services of a medical, behavioral health, mental health, surgical, psychiatric, therapeutic, diagnostic, preventative, rehabilitative, or supportive nature relating to the treatment of gender dysphoria, including insurance coverage for any of the foregoing. Gender-affirming care does not include conversion therapy. Ah, conversion therapy. Yeah, this is conversion therapy. This is the mutilation of children and trying to change them into something else. This, this, you know, oh, it's frustrating. Oh, I hate the reversals. I hate them so much. It, they, I, they make me, I'm very, very angry. Yes, I am. I'm very angry. Uh, yes, I find this triggering. Absolutely. Here's your plain English translation. Notice the softening language, first of all. Care affirming. These are positive and comforting words. But is the care actually care? Is it actually caring? Let me remind you what gender-affirming care means. This is what happens to children. Three-step process. Step one, puberty blockers that disrupt normal brain and body development. Step two, cross-sex hormones which uh, guarantee permanent sterility, permanent sterility, and increase the risk of osteoporosis, stroke, heart attack, and much more, and statistically will shorten their lifespans, will. Step three, surgery. And this is what they mean by caring and affirming. Take a look at your screen. This is called phalloplasty. That means the creation of a penis where a penis did not exist. Look at that Frankenstein monstrosity. Look at it. Republicans? Is this what you wanted for Vermont's children? And I'm going to ask you directly. You know what? I'll, 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 I'll ask one of you. Patty McCoy, would you do this to your child? 
Patty, do you think it's okay to do this to another child? If you want to give me an answer, my email is us at disaffected.fm. I don't think you will, though, will you? What about for girls? Well, it starts with what they cutesily call top surgery, which is bilateral mastectomy, slicing off healthy breasts from teenage girls. Take a look at it. Take a look at the Franken chest. Pretty, huh? It's beautiful. Loving. What parent wouldn't want this for their kid, right? Back to the law. Quote, notwithstanding subdivisions two of this subsection, the provision of a health care service by a person duly licensed under the laws of this state and physically present in this state and the provision of insurance coverage for such services shall be legally protected if the service is permitted under the laws of this state, regardless of the patient's location or whether the provider is licensed in the state where the patient is located at the time the service is rendered. Did you understand any of that? I'll help you. Plain English translation. No matter where the child is in the United States, even if that child lives in a state that actually protects children by prohibiting this medical abuse, Vermont doctors will be protected under Vermont law for prescribing dangerous and unnecessary alleged medications to that child out of state. That's what that means. I think that's what it means. But if you read it differently, if, if there's somebody out there who with, with legal experience, statutory experience, if you read it differently and you think I got it wrong, leave a comment, please, in the YouTube, uh, underneath this in YouTube. Next uh, part I want to talk about, quote, this is where we get into the um, uh, abusive litigation, quote, if a person, whether or not acting under color of law, engages or attempts to engage in abusive litigation that infringes on or interferes with or attempts to infringe on or interfere with legally protected health care activity, any aggrieved person, provider, payer, or other entity, including any defendant in such abusive litigation, may initiate a civil action for injunctive, monetary, or other appropriate relief within six years after the cause of action accrues. Plain English translation. Recall Bob and Jane and their son Billy. Recall that they live in Utah, which prohibits doing this to children. Remember that they are in divorce court and that they are sorting out custody. Under this Vermont law, if Bob sues Jane to stop her from mutilating Billy, Vermont gives Jane a specific enumerated right to sue Bob back. Vermont law calls Bob's attempts to save his son abusive litigation. This is cluster B. Like I said, this law legalizes kidnapping, parental abduction, and mutilation. The process of writing and pushing for this law is pure cluster B. And, and specifically, I would say it's malignant narcissism and psychopathy. Yes, it's at the severe end of cluster B. Of course, all of cluster B is severe, but the psychopaths and the malignant narcissists are the most dangerous. And I can smell them and their reek and stench all over this filthy law. 
It's consciously deceptive, is deliberately written to confuse, and it is written with the knowledge that almost no one will be able to understand its actual effect by reading it. And it relies on a classic reversal. Notice how it characterizes efforts to protect children from mutilation as the abusive act itself. It is abusive in this fucking state to save children. You better be as angry as I am, frankly. This is pure evil. Now, how did the Republicans end up voting for this? What was going through their minds? That's the question that Kevin and I have been asking each other. That's the question we've been asking our friends who care about this. Well, I think there are a couple of possibilities. Um, I'm going to give you a quote here from one of the Republican lawmakers who did vote for this bill. She wrote an article for the conservative outlet Vermont Daily Chronicle, and um, here's what she had to say. This is Gina Golfetti, who is a Republican representative in our state house. Quote, you have to pick your bills, your hills to die on, and H89 was no exception. I do not expect that all of my constituents will agree with my vote of yes on this bill. But if I live to fight another day in a battle of greater consequence, I know that my vote was the proper one. When you are a member of the super minority, you have to play your cards very carefully to gain any ground. And H89 was a prime example of knowing when to fold them. Well, your opposition, Gina, doesn't see it the same way. Here is Emma Mulvaney Stanek on the other side. Listen to her. Today was a historic day. We passed on second reading the yeah. shield law for Vermont. Um, this is incredibly important. So the shield law in Vermont, I see my colleagues clapping. I, I mean, this is this was a big moment um, uh, where we passed uh, protections for healthcare providers and patients who are seeking um, abortion care as well as gender um, affirming care here in the state of Vermont. I can go into a lot more details, but just know that we passed second reading. It will pass tomorrow. Um, this will likely be challenged in the courts later on, but some of this will be um, apply immediately once uh, once passed by the Senate and signed by the governor. And it's a big freaking deal. Um, we need to protect folks and their access. And as long as they're in Vermont, essentially, they will be protected. So right out of the horse's mouth. This is very important. This is a big freaking deal. Oh, and did you catch the other part? They know it's going to go to court. They wrote this knowing this. They know that this is in violation of the Constitution. Gina Golfetti, you got played, madam. Do you have the moral courage, Gina, to admit that you were wrong? Do you have the moral courage to say, I made a mistake and it was actually grossly inappropriate for me to call this a hill that wasn't worth dying on and that something else was of greater consequence. Gina Golfetti, what is of greater consequence than protecting children from medical mutilization? mutilation? What? Tell me, Gina. You gonna be that confident? You gonna pat yourself on the back for being a savvy politician? Then you better answer some goddamn questions, lady. My guess overall about the Republicans is that none of them understood what they were voting for. And I want to say something else about what Gina said about hills to die on. There was no hill to die on here. You 
and your colleagues all could have voted no on this on principle. It wouldn't have changed the outcome, but you did not have to sell your soul. And you did sell your soul. And you sold children out on principle. You, you wouldn't have lost anything. You wouldn't have lost anything. And now you dare to defend yourself? What a joke. Being as charitable as possible, our guess is that most of the Republicans did not understand what they were voting for. And this was deliberate on the part of progressive. The Democrats consciously chose to tie the concept of so-called gender-affirming care, which is actually butchery, to a section of law that protects a woman's right to have abortions. Now, in Vermont, even many Republicans support women's rights to have abortions, even if they may disagree on where the limitations should be. The Democrats knew that the Republicans would feel obligated to vote for this and that they would fear backlash if their constituents saw that they were perceived to be voting against women's rights. So this bill is written in such opaque language with so much tortured legalese that most people, even legislators, will put it down because it's incomprehensible except to experts in legislative language. The progressives and the Democrats did this deliberately. Republicans, this is what you gave us. This is you. You gave us a child mutilation bill that outstrips even California's insanity. How do you feel about what you've done to vulnerable children in Vermont and everywhere else in the country when they're going to flock here? Do you feel good? Will you sleep tonight? Will you sleep well? You shouldn't. Come back and we'll wrap up the show. person in your life, somebody in your family, maybe a boss, maybe a friend, maybe a hobby circle of people that are making you nervous that you can't understand? Do you feel like you're walking on eggshells around them? Are you going through something that I call the reckoning, where you change your mind politically and all of a sudden the people who love you won't speak to you anymore? Do you want to talk to somebody who understands this and who's been through it? Talk to me. Visit joshuaslocum.net. I do one-hour coaching and consulting sessions for people who have problem or impossible people in their lives. A lot of them are cluster B, but not all. We can talk about anything. Visit joshuaslocum.net. I'd be happy to talk to you. What you're seeing is a montage of student art at a elementary school in Burlington. That's right. These are elementary school students who are writing LGBT, trans, queer, BLM, all of this art all over the walls. Look at this one. Stomp the hate with that sneaker kicking a little monkey called hate underneath the table. That, my friends, that's your warning sign. That kid's going to be an Antifa. No, I'm not joking. I'm not making funny. I mean it. And this is where we end up. I'm just giving you a sample here. The altar, the religious goal of this entire issue. The black pride fist rendered in rainbow colors. 
It's Marxist shit. It's Maoist. It's communist. It's cultural revolution. This is what these kids are being in indoctrinated into. Why was I in an elementary school? Because they had the second meeting, again, at an elementary school of the Burlington School District LGBTQ plus task force. Where they wanted to tell us all about the wonderful work they're doing to ensure the safety and integrity and respect of all queer kids. I learned at this meeting that the task force exists because the Department of Justice sued the Burlington School District after a couple of parents who claimed that they have a transgender child alleged that their transgender child was bullied and harassed because of their gender identity. Yeah, you can hear the sarcasm and disbelief in my voice. Part of the settlement between the Burlington School District and the Department of Justice, yes, I have a copy of that settlement. No, I have not yet parsed it. It'll be coming up on an upcoming show. But part of that settlement was the creation of this task force, this LGBTQ plus task force of uh, teachers and staff that they're conscripting students into and doing this dog and pony show about all their wonderful work, which is now putting this, their agreement is now putting up trans and equity diversity statements in every school, in every school library. So it appears to me that the Biden DOJ is enforcing psychiatric delusion as the federal government, and they are enforcing child abuse on public schools with a legal hammer. So here we are at this meeting. You may recall a month ago, we did an episode on the first meeting. Now, this is the second meeting. We had the same leaders. We had 48-year-old teacher Autumn Bangora, the one who last time misrepresented her timeline and said that she'd grown up as a teenager seeing civil unions and gay rights becoming legal when she actually was much older than that when it actually happened. And Alex Ryder, the 22-year-old, very unfortunate, poor young woman who thinks that she is a man and thinks that other people think she is a man. And boy, has she got her fingers in a lot of pies. The first 10 minutes of this meeting consisted of nothing but recitations of diversity statements read off a PowerPoint screen to an audience of 25 people. But first, first, there were new rules. There were no rules announced at the beginning of the last meeting, but after we did our show covering that meeting, Mirabile Diktu, there are new rules. Here they are. Oh, I'm sorry, excuse me. I, I was using violent language. They're not rules, they're agreements. One, this is a safe space where we honor integrity and respect for all. Two, no hate speech, homophobia, or transphobia will be tolerated. Three, videos and photographs are not permitted. And here's the commitment statement that we all had to sit through Alex Ryder reading to us like a four-year-old child who has not developed a sense of cadence or prosody. Task force statement of LGBTQ plus advocacy. 
We at the Burlington School District stand committed to transforming BSD into a national model for holistic wellness for LGBTQ plus people, youth and adults. We stand in solidarity with LGBTQ plus students, staff and community members and believe that schools can truly be safe only when every student is assured access to an education without fear. We stand behind our BSD staff who pursue a safe and supportive environment for all students. We also stand behind our educators who teach an inclusive curriculum that features LGBTQ plus people, history, and events and raises awareness to counter discriminatory stereotypes, bias, and harassment. And here's yet another that they needed to read out to us in the audience. I'm going to put it on your screen, but I'm not going to disrespect you the way they disrespected me by reading that bullshit pablum. Commitment to diversity and equity in Burlington School District. That's all you're getting. This is not a funny episode. I'm not doing a lot of funnies, but I have got to mock some of this crap. All right, so I told you that this meeting had 25 people. Why don't you take a guess about the sex ratio breakdown? That's right. Four of us were men, including two of those men, me and Christopher Aaron Felker, my friend who is also a middle-aged gay man who is the chairman of the Burlington Republican Party. I'm going to say something that some of you are not going to like. And I've been saying a lot of these things the past couple of weeks. And these are things that I'm afraid that women, many of them, will not like to hear. Too bad. It's the truth, and we have to face this. All of us. This is a collective responsibility. No, not a collectivist responsibility. You know that women were the best good Germans for the Axis in World War II? You know that, right? Do you know that fact? Because it is a fact. Women are the most reliable enforcers in a nonviolent way. It's the men who carry the guns, it's the men who do the raping. Yeah, absolutely, and they fight the wars. But on the social front, it is women who are the most reliable enforcers of authoritarian regimes every single time. They may not be carrying the guns, but they've got their children's minds in their purses and they enforce social compliance. They are the ones who will tell the Nazis that Anne Frank and her family are in the attic. As I told you, the same leader, Adam, Autumn Bangora, was here leading this, and she was clearly tickled, delighted that the Department of Justice sued her school district. She said it was the right thing to do, that the Burlington School District had it coming. They were doing a lot of bad things. I actually wonder if she got her current role in her job because of this settlement. I don't know if she did, but I do wonder. We learned that the Burlington School District is surveying its students about their private sexual interests. Says Autumn, quote, we have a really high percentage of LGBTQ students. You know, I, I'll tell you something. I started my career as a newspaper reporter and I learned it the old fashioned way. 
I have a steno notebook and I take notes by hand. I don't record everything. I don't do what modern alleged journalists do, where they simply turn on their video cameras and then they go back and waste two or three hours of their time sitting there transcribing things and listening to the whole thing again. No, that's not how you do it. Thank God I still have those skills because I filled up 14 pages by hand during this hour-long meeting because they wouldn't let me take any photographs. And I'm actually glad about that. And I scribbled down a lot. So we have a really high percentage of LGBTQ students in Burlington. How do we know this? Because the school's been asking them. Take a look at this graphic. BSD has a large LGBTQ population. Out of 425 high schoolers surveyed, 35.3% self-identified as LGBTQ+. When did it become normal for teachers and school districts to quiz children about their sexual proclivities and their sexual desires? Is there a single public school teacher left without a pedophilic interest in their children? I'll wait. Okay. You know what else? Yeah, I meant pedophilic. And I mean the women, too. Yeah. Yeah, pedophile women. They may not actually be diddling the kids. Some of them are. I'm sure some of them are. Most of them are not, though. They're diddling their minds. That's what they're doing. Autumn found herself in a bind, though bringing her LGBTQ plus awareness to some members of her community, immigrant families. She refused to say the word immigrants. She refused to name countries or ethnicities. Listen to how she's trapped herself, trying to figure out how to quote, respect immigrant cultures, that's my quote, while also telling them that they are wrong, but without being seen by anyone to be telling black Somalian families that their culture is shit. But she does think their culture is shit. She just knows she can't say it. She doesn't know what to do. Quote, we have students that come from some communities that have some stigmas about LGBTQ. It's okay to believe things, but it's not okay to disrespect. She's lying. It's not okay to believe things. She doesn't believe that. It's not okay to believe anything except what they want you to believe. That's the whole point of this depraved school tent revival that they've been pulling for two months now. And she doesn't mean disrespect either. She means it's not okay to disagree. Do you believe for one moment that people like this are actually discriminating between real harassment and bullying and statements like, you're not a boy though, you're a girl? They're not. They're not. And you know they're not. Another woman in the audience really scared me. Yeah, it was, it was mostly middle-aged white women, absolutely, all wearing their little ethnic scarves that they would have gotten from places like um, uh, Crate and Barrel when that was still popular. You know, Cape Cod white people clothes. This woman really scared me. About 50, rail-thin, frenetic, twitchy affect, and huge wide eyes. Big dramatic eyes. She was very concerned. She said it was scary how much bullying kids got away with on social media. Quote, there are just so many ways this stuff can be done that we won't know about. We've got to find out what the kids are saying on their social media. Creepy much? Autumn agreed with her. 
and advised the audience, including the teachers, to log into TikTok and other platforms to see if students were bullying other students. These women want complete dominion over your children, over your family, and over you, whether you're in school or outside of it. They respect no boundaries. Privacy doesn't exist in their world. Then they wheeled out a panel of four young girls to tell the audience how old they were when they first learned about LGBTQ. Each of these girls introduced herself this way, in the same robotic cadence. My name is Jane and I use she, her pronouns. These girls were between 11 and 13 years old. They were eighth and ninth graders. It was painful, actually painful, to watch these innocent girls put under a public spotlight and asked to answer questions about sex and gender identity in front of adults, to parrot, to act, to act as avatars for what these adults want them to say. So there were two white girls and two obviously black Muslim girls. The contrast was interesting. White girl number one had some things to say about what teachers ought to be doing. Quote, I don't think the teachers are that open to learning. Like, we put together a presentation for them, and there was a lot of backlashing, like, oh, it's always the teacher's fault? Maybe that's been working out for them, but it's not working for students. 12 years old. Saucy as shit, isn't she? Maybe that's working out for them. Huh? Talk to me that way, honey, and find out. One of the black Muslim girls, though, went off script. She was smiling and acting demure, but her words were not complimentary about the school district. Quote, I feel like it was forced on us. On day one of seventh grade, they gave us the gender unicorn, and I felt I had to choose one as how to express myself. Take a look at the gender unicorn. You have gender identity, gender expression, sex assigned at birth, physically attracted to, emotionally attracted to. Which one are you, little girl? Which one are you sexually attracted to? Oh, kawaii, you fucking perverts. There's too much to cover in this episode from this meeting. So I'm gonna go into more detail in an upcoming audio this week, but I'm gonna leave this as a closer for you. The Burlington School District, and this is not the only one, they intend to have your children from the cradle. From our leader, Autumn, quote, LGBTQ plus is brought up in pre-K and in kindergarten. You better pray. I'll see you next week.